This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. These people in these photos that Nobuyuki took all lost everything they owned. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, and I'm here with uh, Susan Bernier, and uh, she is a prolific speaker and writer on the topic of crisis communication and emergency management, and we're going to talk a little bit about her current book that she has out that I just uh, finished reading uh, most of, and it was really interesting about the people that, that she dealt with with, uh, with crisis. So, uh, Susan, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into emergency management and then on the uh, crisis side of communication? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all, on the podcast. And I, I had to ask you this question. Do you ever call it the Toddcast? That's what it should be called. <laughs> I don't, but thank you. For that. Uh, but yes, on that note, um, I started in the field of emergency management in a very indirect way, which I think a lot of us did originally. I don't think many of us that started in the field 20 years ago, you know, grew up thinking, I want to be an emergency manager. Right. Um, it's just not one of those careers that you think of that way. But I, I wanted to be a journalist when I grew up. I kind of always knew that. So that's how what I started in the field of journalism, graduated from journalism and became a, a news reporter and an anchor. And then in a very, in a different turn of events, um, I ended up being um, the communications advisor to our state level, the equivalent in, in uh, Canada, our state level emergency management organization for the province of Ontario. So originally I was hired by our government to be the media relations advisor to our emergency management agency, which is called Emergency Management Ontario or EMO. Um, and that was uh, over 20 years ago. And then as soon as I made that shift, I realized, wait a minute, I didn't want to just talk about all the great things that these field officers were doing, helping communities respond and recover after disasters. I wanted to be one of those officers. So luckily, the director at the time, when I mentioned that to him, there was the only school in Canada that you could get training at the, back then was the Canadian Emergency Management College. So they sent me there. I took all the intensive courses that we ne- you needed to take to become an officer. I came out. There happened to be an availability for an officer position, and I competed for it and got it and spent five, the next five years uh, going around the province responding to disasters and helping communities evacuate and, and respond and rebuild. So that's kind of a short summary of how I ended up in emergency management from journalism into it. So I've, I've had the opportunity to be able to work and volunteer. So either in a professional capacity or in a volunteer capacity in a, a variety of different disasters of different scales and different sizes and in different countries. And what struck me And it it took me until Katrina, really, when I was on the ground volunteering in New Orleans after Katrina, it just kind of dawned on me that what I was seeing in the news, I was not really prepared for what I saw on the ground when I got there because the news reports were, and I, I was there several months in. So what I had heard 
was not at all what was happening on the ground. And then I realized, wait, this happens in every emergency situation. You get to an emergency and there's amazing people working together from all different organizations, volunteer groups, nonprofits. And I thought, this is the stuff that we need to be talking about. It's not just the bad things that we feature in the news that people need to know about after a disaster. Yes, there's tragedies. And I don't want to downplay the horrors of some of our disasters that we go through. But I also just thought it was so important to focus on the positive aspects. And as you know, every time we deal with a disaster, there's lessons that we learn from them. And there's some amazing, great people who step up and do amazing things that nobody ever gets to hear about. So I thought being a former journalist and recognizing that as well, that the media just don't have the time to be able to to do that, you know, go back afterwards and look at and tell all the good positive stories that have come from disasters. So I thought, well, then, then I'll do it. So I kind of made it my goal after Katrina to start finding everyday people. And I wanted to focus on everyday people who've come up with some great ideas to be able to help communities um, recover after disasters. I was inspired originally by a gentleman that I met when I was volunteering in New Orleans, who's a New Orleanian, but his story wasn't about um, what he did to help his city rebuild. It was about what he did four years prior to that after 9-11. And so when I was meeting him and talking to him, he was telling me his story. And I just thought, yeah, here's a perfect example of how anybody can make a difference difference after a disaster. And you may not necessarily even have been trained in the field of emergency management to have an idea that blossoms into this huge endeavor. So Ronnie Goldman, the gentleman I'm talking about, he ended up just having an idea after 9-11 and witnessing a speech that President Bush at the time delivered on ground zero. He realized what the president was standing on, which was a burned out fire truck. And then he realized not only have they lost all of these lives of service people, but they've lost over 100 service vehicles. So he thought, you know, instead of being your typical armchair critic sometimes, and you'd be watching the news coverage and say, well, I hope they do something about that. (laughs) I hope somebody comes up with the money to give them 100 vehicles or whatever it is. Ronnie just thought, well, you know what? Why don't I start a fundraising campaign? So he called a local talk show the next day, a local radio talk show, and just made the suggestion that they start a fundraising campaign and individuals from across the state of Louisiana could donate money to be able to, originally their goal was to just build and deliver a brand new fire truck on behalf of the state of Louisiana, the residents themselves, to New York. And it was a beautiful story because, of course, it's one of the poorest states in the union. Right. Um, getting together and showing how much love and care and support they had for New York and doing something about it. In the end, just that one little call, because of that one idea that Ronnie had, ended up raising over a million dollars, and um, which was enough to be able to build and deliver several brand new vehicles to New York City after 9-11. The, the great piece of that story as well is this story of that first fire truck that was delivered to New York on behalf of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana. Ronnie said, little did he know that four years later, that truck would come right back to New Orleans with the same amount of firefighters who lost their lives um, in in 9-11 to be able to help rebuild and say thank you to New Orleans for what they did to help New York recover um, by giving them service vehicles. It's just a beautiful representation, I think, of how one man with one idea and taking action and doing something then ends up benefiting not only a community halfway across America, but also comes right back uh, to New Orleans again to save that community. Part of the story that resonated with me was when he and his group of people that were kind of touring New York went to Ground Zero and, and saw one of the ceremonies going on and realized that that 
wasn't their their place for a, a photo op and whatnot and said hey let's let's move on and and they understood the respect that I don't want to say understood that's not the word I'm looking for but but gave the respect that those uh, families and firefighters needed um, and at that time and that kind of really kind of kind of hit home with me when I read that in your book yeah yeah just it, and it was so challenging to be able to pick 10 everyday heroes because otherwise I never would have stopped writing the book because there are so many people and I'm sure you've met so many of them as well. It's just amazing people who do amazing things after every disaster or every crisis that happens and so it was really tough to pick out who who I wanted to feature because it just never it would never end and now I'm compiling so many other stories for a future book because there's just you know once I started focusing on that aspect of disasters the positive side and the everyday heroes now I'm start I meet them you know everywhere and I've got people calling me and, and emailing me saying I've got a suggestion for your next book and here's another hero there's just so many of them out there right. and it's I think it's just really important for everyone not only in our industry but just in general to know that there are good people out there and not to lose faith in humanity and I think <laughs> what's been happening even since I first wrote the book you know the world's changed a lot just in the last two years as right. well and I think it's even more important now than ever to get this message out that we need to continue to focus on the good and the helpers and the heroes and those stories that come from disasters so that we to, to keep us positive. Um, one of the things that I mention a lot when I go on, on speaking um, engagements is, and you probably noticed one of the first quotes in the book is from Mr. Rogers. Right, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and it was a quote that I think some of us are familiar with in the field and, and maybe not um, everyone, but he was being interviewed a long time ago and he had mentioned that when he was a little boy and he would see scary things in the news, he ran to his mother and for comfort, she would tell him, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And he said that would help him calm down and, and be less scared. And I think that's an important message that I think every child these days and every adult should take away with them and think about the next time they're looking at disturbing coverage on the news, on the television, on the internet, perhaps turn it into somewhat of a game with children and have them point out the helpers and the heroes in these images of disaster so that it helps shape their perception that yes, bad things happen, but that look at all the good people that are around. I think that we're just so focused sometimes on seeing these images of devastation and destruction that we sometimes lose sight of the periphery around each of those images where you'll see the firefighter carrying somebody to safety, the police officer helping somebody, the everyday citizen directing traffic after a terror attack and a power outage. Those are the people that we need to teach our children to keep focus on and remember that if they ever face a disaster, there'll be people to help them too. Or they might be one of those people to help someone else. One of the things I try to do when I was working in the city that I was working for, we had the CERT program and my goal always was not to have a cadre of volunteers, which which came. You know, when we we'd have a class of a hundred people, and out of the hundred, maybe you know we get like ten that would stick around to volunteer, which is good. But my goal was always to empower people to do good and to be prepared at their own home, but also to to do good. And reading through your book, I noticed that there was that there was a thread that I found, and I don't know if this was just me picking it up or if this is what you found as well. But the one word that comes to to mind is tenacious people. The tenacity to finish through and see these through the hard times to see something through to the end. Is that what you found with most of the people that you interviewed uh, for Disaster Heroes? That's a great observation and definitely one that I, I perceived as well. Tenacity, perseverance, 
and just not really thinking about, um, they all had similar personality aspects, which I kind of yeah, only discovered at the end when I was compiling them all together and realized there were certain specific traits character traits that each one of them had. And I think that's what made the difference between them and perhaps somebody else. Um, But you definitely being tenacious and having that perseverance and thinking that they could do this and not having other people tell them, well, and, and, you know, there there was one story, I'm not sure if you read it, um, but one about a mother-daughter team who ended up creating the first ever recognized official community Facebook page in response to a disaster after the Joplin tornado. Oh, yes, yes, I did. And even after, yeah, and after, you might recall, in the story, um, when they were telling me their story, um, they would be trying to, they were being told to shut it down by recognized organizations. But in the end, they didn't give up anyway. They knew what they were doing was right. It was helping. It was of most benefit to their community members. So they stayed on, kept on going, and now what they created is being used and referenced as a model by FEMA and others across America because of what they did and they stuck to it and they ended up creating and implementing an amazing program now that other communities have now created based on their model as well. When I was first reading that and I was seeing how the people were reacting to it and as a as a professional responder and an emergency manager, you know, at first I could see why they're upset going, you know, we want to have a message. We want to make sure our message is clear and concise and with the right things. And, and sometimes as EMs, we can't get out of our own way uh, when we're trying to, to do the right thing, you know, uh, with, with people. But what I think is kind of cool, and from what I gather from that as well, is that's the that's the the nexus or the, the catalyst, I should say, for the Facebook check-in, right? For are you okay? Right. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I was like, wow, that is awesome that an end user uh, and a citizen that was just trying to do the right thing kind of has this whole movement now of the are you okay check-in on Facebook that people know that you're safe. And, and that's, again, it's a, one of those really great stories that comes out of uh, out of tragedy, right? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's just uh, all of these people too recognize what what they could do to be able and, and you know the skills that they had maybe weren't your your normal skills that you think of that you we would require during an emergency to respond to an emergency but they had specific other skills and talents that perhaps those of us in emergency management might not like back then for them their specific skills and talents were they knew you know they were one rec- the daughter was a recent graduate um, of social media and so they had talents and skills that a lot of people back then, and if you think in 2009, a lot has happened since then where now we've really embraced social media. But back then, it wasn't so much. It was still kind of a new thing, especially for people in our field. So we had, and now pretty much every organization and every every agency has some kind of a social media presence. But it, it took a while, and it, it, it's funny how now it seems like a no-brainer. But even just a few years ago, it was a lot different. So it was great to see these people step in who did know how to be able to use social media or Facebook specifically appropriately for the needs. And what they did, they made sure that nothing that they posted was not, they didn't post anything that wasn't provided from an official source. So what they were doing, they they were reposting whatever it was that was being announced by the police or fire or different areas. And, And that was key too. They weren't just randomly pushing out information without verifying everything first and making sure that they were all attributed to valid sources, which of course is very important. 
Something like that also helps quell the the rumors because there's, as you know, in any emergency and disaster, just rumors are all over the place. Right. And that's the thing. A lot of one of the topics that I talk about a lot now is using social media and emergency management. And I think that now people get it. And if we can use it in the right way, it really is such a great additional tool, not the only tool that we should be using now to communicate during a crisis, but definitely a really great additional tool that. And we're seeing it every day, the benefits of it. There's some challenges too, which is the rumor control. But now because, I mean, if you're plugged in to social media, now we have an opportunity to catch those rumors as quickly as they start and quash them as quickly as they get out as well by responding through social media, where before we didn't have social media, there'd be a rumor out there, we'd have to wait till the next, or misinformation, we'd have to wait till the next news cycle or the next news day for them to publish the error or whatever it was. Now we can really, within five minutes, turn around and address a piece of misinformation or a rumor and quash it within the first 30 minutes, which was something that we didn't have that, we, we just didn't have that capability before. So in a way, I really view it as a positive thing. Yeah, you can uh, distribute rumors a lot easier and quicker and faster through social media, but you can also shut them down just as quickly. I want to take a quick break here for a second. And when we come back, I really want to hear about uh, Mr. Uh, Kobayashi and what he did on the recovery aspects after the tsunami in Japan. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. 315 and 314, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting inside. 453, Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TACMED. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to, and managing large-scale incidents. HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff at High Speed TACMED will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TACMED today at 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805 805- Zero five four one nine zero zero two four. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Bringing up bodies now. Get someone to the back as soon as you can. Rescue personnel. I got at least three to seven hit. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.
and welcome back from the break. So before we went to the break, I, I kind of asked you a question regarding uh, Mr. Kobayashi and the great East Japanese earthquake or Japan earthquake and tsunami. I, I read the story and it really was, again, touched my heart a little bit. Can you tell me a bit about Mr. Kobayashi and what he did and, and, and how he really helped the people of Japan recover to some, some sort of normalcy um, after that terrible event? I would be honored to talk about Nobuyuki Kobayashi, who is a pretty famous, well-known photographer based out of Tokyo. And after the tsunami occurred, he felt that he wanted to do something to be able to help that community recover. And originally, he was sent with a mission of getting photographs and images of the devastation. But he realized that what he could do to help the community rebuild and recover was not taking photographs of the destruction and the devastation. But instead, what he wanted to do was to give them a new beginning. What he realized was these people who, if you think about it, they lost everything. And a lot of what they lost could be bought back or built back. But what could never be given back to them are all the photos that they lost. And many, if not all of those families, lost everything, including all of their family photos and their family portraits that usually they would have hanging up on their wall. So Dobuyuki thought, well, what if I give back to them their family portraits? And so he enlisted some other photographers and makeup artists and set designers, and they went near where the devastated communities were, and they set up a makeshift photo studio. And they took free family portraits of everybody, all the families who lost everything in the tsunami. And it's amazing to see how incredible these images, and you saw them in the book, and there's so many other ones that Nobuyuki took, but he just thought that this would be a way to give back to them something that they would never normally ever be able to get back or regain, and also realize that it would be sort of a... um, a new a representation of a new beginning for those families as well. And it ends up, it, Nobuyuki had told me when I was interviewing him, because if you go through these pictures in the book, everybody looks joyful and happy, and you would have no idea that these people in these photos that Nobuyuki took all lost everything they own. And he, I'd asked him, did he tell them to pose a certain way or smile? Or, and he said that he didn't ask them to do anything. He just wanted them to be their, themselves and pose. Yet, remarkably, I, and I think that these photos, when you see each one of them, it, each photo really demonstrates personal, the human resilience that we humans really have. To see people who've lost everything they own, yet can pose for a new photo and be happy and look ahead to the future instead of look behind at what they've experienced, I just thought was so beautiful, not only touching from Nobuyuki's perspective of recognizing that this is something that he would be able to give to them that they would never be able to get from anybody else, but also how strong these photos end up showing everybody who survived that disaster really, really are. That was a super touching story. And and again, as I read some of these stories, I just get, uh, I get chills through my body of of thinking about, you know, what they've gone through. And and, uh, sometimes we personalize things as far as, you know, as responders and as, uh, as emergency managers and and to see these people just to be able to be joyful for, for what they still have. It just, uh, it made my Made my made read made read this book well worth the price of admission. I tell you that to everybody. Just uh, just let you know. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, Nobuyuki is great. I was able to meet up with him. I, I so we we ended up presenting together and sharing his story together in Japan last summer. So I was able to go back and and share a stage now with with uh, with Nobuyuki. My 
my Japan hero. <laughs> um, so that was that was wonderful. He's an amazing, amazing man, as as is everybody that I feature, and as is everybody who responds during an emergency all over the world. So it's just so great to be able to have a little bit of a voice to be able to just let people know about some of these small snippet of these amazing people that are out there helping all the time. I want to ask you about one more person in your book. Sure. We always talk about the human cost to disaster. And this one piece that you have in here talks about the animals that get caught up in disasters. And I know that we have plans for large animals or reunification with like, you know, horses and whatnot here in, in California, but we really don't have a huge thing. I mean, we're working on it, but we don't really talk a lot about the small animals. Now we have some volunteer organizations that take care of it, but this piece about out of Silver Lake, Alberta is one I'd like you to talk about a little bit. And how did you find her? And well, you tell the story. Sure. So yes, you're talking about Denise McIntyre's story, and she's a local pet groomer from a community up in northern Canada that went through and suffered a devastating fire that swept through the community a few years ago, a community of a couple thousand people. And they were all had to quickly, very quickly evacuate, which is sometimes the case in communities when you've got, you know, a wildfire coming or, or other instances. So um, the whole community evacuated. They thought, most people thought they were only evacuating for a night or two. So because because of that, most people left their pets in their homes, thinking that they were in their yards, thinking they'd be able to go back and take care of them within a day or two. It ended up that a lot of people weren't able to go back home for several, like a couple of weeks. So a local pet groomer who stayed behind because her husband had a role in um, responding to the fire, she stayed behind. And then when she realized all of these pets and how people were not going to be re-entering as quickly as they were thought they were, she realized, wait a minute, all of these pets are not going to be around anymore when their owners come back if somebody doesn't do something about it. So she ended up creating this whole volunteer team, but also with the first responders that were that stayed on site as well to allow access into these homes and permission to be able to either remove or just go in and feed and water the animal. So they ended up rescuing, I believe, over 300 pets, everything from birds to reptiles, cats and dogs. She said the only animals, that, there were pets that they were not able to save, unfortunately, were fish because it's very, they're very delicate system with fish. But otherwise, and I believe there were perhaps two dogs that were lost as well. Other than that, she was able to save hundreds of pets' lives. Another one of those stories that you read and you go, wow. I mean, people are just really able to give back and it does. This book, if you're like me and I'm starting to get a hard heart sometimes regarding humanity and you read this and you go, okay, yeah, humanity's still really there. and it's People really right. do care for each other, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely one I wanted to include because of what you were saying was sometimes we still kind of lose sight about the whole planning for our pets. So this was a really important one, I I think, to um, to include. And, and for her to be able to, to think about that and be able to actually activate a whole volunteer team and look for shelter areas. And it's an amazing thing that she was able to lead. And oh, and you would ask me how I even found her. And so some of them ran Randomly, I just found on my own or other people recommended me for this specific emergency. I wanted to have a Canadian disaster because I am technically Canadian, even though I spent <laughs> most of my time in the U.S. the last several years. But I thought I, I wanted to find a Canadian story. And then I reached out to the mayor at the time of this community. Uh-huh. And I had asked her because it was one of the biggest disasters that we had had at that time in Canada. And it was the mayor who had given me a few different suggestions of who she would recommend as a local everyday hero. And when she she 
listed her name and what she did, I knew right away that that was the person that I wanted to teach her. She didn't want it. That's another thing that I found with each one of these heroes. And that's probably what makes them a hero too, right? Is that heroes aren't the ones, heroes don't call themselves heroes and don't like to be called heroes (laughs) at all. So she did not even want to talk to me originally. Denise did not. And a a lot of them, when I reached out to them, I kind of had a tough time convincing them because they really didn't want, they all felt that they didn't do enough and they could have done more. Every single person, and you've read most of the stories, they, if anything, I think it would be the opposite that they should be feeling, right? (laughs) But every single person just, they felt, well, you know, why me? I didn't really do much. And yeah, that was another common trait I saw. But that's probably something that makes sense to be a hero you are selfless and you're not doing it to be recognized as a hero and i agree with you there you know sometimes the people with the hero complex are the people that do, that don't do the don't do enough right you know <laughs> so you said you have another another book kind of in you right now is it going to be the same type of thing or or are you looking at doing a, something a little bit different direction yeah or? you know i keep changing my mind because there's so many great people that I meet and great stories that I hear about. And one of the things that I've been more working with lately, the last couple of years, it's on the survivor side. So I've been with a lot of these active shooter incidents that have been happening over the last couple of years, specifically after San Bernardino and onwards, I've been doing work specifically with the survivors to get lessons learned from them on how we can help community plan and respond for the next attack better based on their experiences. And so with San Bernardino, Orlando, some of the other terror attacks in Europe, and I'm meeting and recognizing how many survivor heroes there are too. And so now I'm thinking, I mean, I could totally write a book just on survivor heroes, just based on some of the heroes that, that I've met who've survived these horrific attacks that I can't even imagine. So I'm thinking of that as a book, but there's another exciting project that is in the works as well. A local PBS affiliate station out of New Orleans, they found out about the, the book and I was interviewed on, on uh, one of their shows and now they, they want to create Disaster Heroes, the documentary series. Really? So we're, yeah. So we're hoping, um, you know, getting the right sponsors to sponsor it. They are, yeah, they, they think that this is, and I think that we all agree that this is something that people need to hear about. And we've got so many stories, you know, you could fill up an episode, no problem with heroes all around the world responding to disasters. But yeah, so that's the, the next big project. I met with them a couple of weeks ago. We've got this fancy pamphlet now to try to get a couple of good sponsors to sponsor our first season of Disaster Heroes the documentary but I think you know now more than ever people need like you said people need to have something to restore their faith in humanity and every day or every second day it looks like we turn on the news and there's something else bad happening but wouldn't it be great to counter and balance that out by being able to turn something on that's showing you now about all the positive people and things that are happening out of these disasters that you hear about and you only get one side of it that's not a sexy news story right so the news kind of goes right. away yeah I know I've I've uh, experienced that a little bit my myself. Okay, so if people, you know, emergency managers or, and anybody in general, I suppose, who's listening to this podcast, really would like to get a hold of you and you know see what you're all about, how can they contact you? Sure, they can look me up. My website is my name, so pretty easy, SuzanneBernier.com, and that's spelled out S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-B-E-R-N-I-E-R.com. And you'll be able to find out how to reach me. They can find my email there, or telephone. Um, and I would love, I love being able to share experiences with colleagues as well and 
you link them to people that might help them. So I'm very, I love being a connector in the industry, connecting people to other people that might help them. So I would love anybody who has either any questions about the book or the stories or anything else in emergency management or crisis communications or social media and emergency management, please feel free to reach out to me anytime. Okay. So now Outside of your book, which I highly recommend anybody who is in this business and outside, just people, human interest in general to buy the book, what would you recommend? What book would you recommend outside Disaster Heroes? Because I already recommend that one for you. Uh, which, book, right. which book do you recommend to somebody who, or, or articles or, or, or any kind of publication for that matter, that's yeah. just getting into emergency management and crisis communications? Well, I have a couple that I would suggest for people. On the crisis communications topic, there's a really great one, and it's um, the textbook that I've been using to teach crisis communications, which is called the Crisis Communications, a Casebook Approach, and it's by Kathleen Fearn-Banks. And it's really, really great. And it, it, the fifth edition just came out to be able to reflect a lot more on social media and, and some of the newer things that have happened since it was first um, published. But it's, it's just a really great hand, guidebook on how to develop a crisis communications plan, how to use social media effectively, how to use traditional media to be able to get your message across during a crisis. It's just something I would recommend to anybody. You know that every one of us in this field, one of the biggest things that we see, but one of the biggest challenges every time we either run an exercise or a real event happens, one of the biggest observations of failures is crisis communications. Yes. Um, that's why I'm mentioning this book first, because anybody who's in this field really needs to have some kind of a base knowledge of crisis communications, I feel. So that's one I, I, I would highly recommend um, if you can pick one book. If you're in this business long enough, at some point you're going to have a you're gonna have a microphone shoved in your face. You're going to have to answer some questions and you should, it's good right. to have that plan. And, it doesn't, it's, and uh, no comment doesn't work anymore. <laughs> that's worse, right? <laughs> that's, exactly. That's so... You don't want to have this meme repeating yourself constantly over social media forever saying no comment. <laughs> that's happened. We've seen that happen to some leaders who unfortunately made some statements that, you know, they might have, <laughs> they might regret. So um, the other book that I just recently read, and, and I have to mention this just because even you know, where we're talking about the positive side of disasters, however, uh, the reality is that over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot more active shooter and active intruder attacks mm -hmm. in America, but also across the world. And so I recently just finished a book called The Power to Recover. And it's a guide to managing trauma at, in your workplace, specifically, well, it could be anything, but active intruder events. Um, and it, it was written by a really brilliant doctor of psychotherapy in the UK, Liz Royal, and her colleague, Catherine Kerr. And it's just a kind of a really great, it's a small, short read, but everything in it really talks about what to consider and how to be able to consider your human element after something like that happens. And I think that, and what I've seen meeting with survivors of active intruder attacks and seeing how some of the unfortunate mistakes or challenges that have happened since the event that they've, they've been a part of. It just seems that there are a lot of basic things that sometimes because we're so caught up in the plans and following procedures that we lose sight of what really 
is important and that it's it's about dealing with humans and knowing how to be able to support not only their physical recovery but their mental health recovery and and I think it's something that I've noticed every single time I talk to a communities who've gone through these things where it's something that sometimes gets missed along the way and Liz and her colleague in the power to recover book really talk about and it's really basic stuff if you, you when you read it it's all stuff that yeah this totally makes sense as if your company wouldn't have this in place or that you wouldn't think of this or providing this to someone who was just in an active shooter attack at your workplace. But it's it's amazing to see how we just sometimes don't think of this stuff. So this is a great way to just sort of, oh yeah, remind organizations and communities what they should be thinking about or when something happens to grab this book off the shelf. And then it really is kind of a step-by-step guide from that first five minutes of what happened after that event right through to months later, what you should be doing to be able to provide them with the needs that they need to be able to healthily recover and go back to work and be productive members again in their community. People would never criticize you for running a fire drill at your, at your place of business or, or school or, or anything like that. And, and in the United States, and I don't know what the statistics are in Canada, but we haven't had a a death to a fire in a public building, meaning a school or, or something like that, since 1956. And But yeah, wow. pe- people are still afraid to do active shooter and or active shooter recovery exercises in, in their place of business in schools. And it's the big taboo here. And I don't really understand what the fear of that is. But anyway, it's just one of those things. But at least if you could tabletop that along yourselves in, in the closed doors and, and not drill it, I suppose, uh, this this is something that needs to be done. I'll tell you that from, from personal experience that uh, it is definitely a long recovery aspect after something like that goes down. Right. It was really remarkable to see how simple really these thoughts are on what we can do to be able to help and how a lot of these things that we can provide to people don't cost anything. Uh, It's more about just knowing what people might need or even just letting, you know, the whole critical incident stress management and making sure that people recognize what they might be going through and then pointing them into the right pointing them to the right direction to be able to seek help. And when a lot of these active intruder incidents, it's kind of different than, let's say, a first responder death where you've got people who are all in the same industry. They're all kind of a family. But there's a lot of different circumstances nowadays that we're seeing with active intruder attacks where you've got people who are all from random different backgrounds and different. And we're not even, it's not really, a lot of these aren't even in a workplace. Right. You know, you've got, like if you look at the Orlando nightclub shooting, that itself is a huge challenge to manage how you're going to now be able to support the recovery of every single person that was in that club that managed to survive. Or also how you're going to support the families of those who lost members who did not survive in that club. And they're all different people from different ages and different cities and different areas and different workplaces. So that's a new challenge that we have too, is it's not really just violence in the workplace, but there's a lot more things happening where you've got a bunch of people together, but they're all kind of random strangers together, but now are all experiencing the same incident. It's more than just those that were physically wounded. It's also the psychological trauma of being in a a, a beautiful salon and somebody coming in and making that day traumatic for you you know so yeah i mean that's a really the power to recovery that's that's a that's a real real important aspect of of day-to-day life nowadays right i mean and this little guidebook to me i think every single company should have this on their desk and every single person every employee because i'm looking i was when i was reading it i'm thinking wow this would actually help someone as well manage through trauma that they've gone through themselves not only you know how to help an organization know how to help people manage through it 
would, but it would help an individual themselves too. So, so that's, yes, that's my, um, my other little book that I would highly recommend. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time today. And I really would uh, love to have you back on, uh, talk about crisis communication again, and of course your, your new work that's coming out and, and anything else. So I'd uh, love to have you back sometime. I would love to be back and hopefully I'll be back talking all about the new documentary series on PBS, Disaster Heroes. I would love to have you on when that when that launches out. So um, thank you very much and uh, and have a, a wonderful day. Everybody, thank you so much for uh, tuning in here to Ian Weekly and, and uh, taking some time out of your day to, to listen to this podcast. Please reach out to Susan and, and uh, make that connection. It's great. And again, the book is Disaster Heroes. I'm telling you, if you go through that book and you don't get one chill there's something wrong with you because those people are amazing and they deserve their story to be told. So definitely pick it up. You can get it on Amazon. Um, you can get it on Kindle. Uh, yeah, I think you can get it directly from Susan from her website as well. I recommend getting it. So it's called Disaster Heroes. Thank you so much for everybody listening. See you next week. 